Katie Walker-Grimes is Assistant Professor of Theological Ethics at Villanova University. A native Ohioan, Dr. Grimes earned her PhD in theology from Boston College and her master's and bachelor's degrees from Notre Dame University. Dr. Grimes is a prolific writer and has appeared in numerous academic journals, including Political Theology, Horizons, and in the Journal of Religious Ethics. She's a regular contributing author to the blog, Women in Theology. Her research interests include liberation theology, calling attention to the pervasive presence of white supremacy in the Catholic Church, critically retrieving natural law theory and sexual ethics. Throughout her research and writing, Dr. Grimes brings Catholic feminist ethics into conversation with Catholic tradition in order to address the challenges of the contemporary church. She is the author of two books, Price Divided, Anti-Blackness as Corporate Vice, and Fugitive Saints, Catholicism and the Politics of Slavery, both published by Fortress Press in 2017. She contributed an essay on Episcopal accountability to a Pope Francis lexicon, which is a collection of essays and key words and concepts of Pope Francis's ministry. It was edited by Cindy Wooden and Joshua McElwee. Based on her very empowering and insightful comments in that essay, we've invited her, her here tonight to expand upon those remarks. And so please join me in welcoming Dr. Kitty Grimes. I'm going to turn things over now to Deborah Rose Milovic for opening prayer. Thank you, Russ. I wanted to start tonight with just a reading from 1 Corinthians. And since this whole series is about uh, the, the movement from clericalism, uh, kind of uh, domination, to collaboration, yeah. where Has joined. we are partners together, um, I thought I would read this scripture. To one, the Spirit gives wisdom in discourse. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. Through the Spirit, one person receives faith. Through the same Spirit, another is given the gift of healing. To still another, miraculous powers. Prophecy is given to one, to another, power to distinguish one spirit from another. One receives the gifts of tongues, another that of interpreting tongues. But it is one and the same spirit who produces all these gifts and distributes them as she wills. The body is one, even though it has many parts, all the parts, many though they are, comprise a single body. And so it is with Christ. It was by one spirit that all of us, whether we are Jews or Greeks, slaves or citizens, male or female, clergy or lay, were baptized into one body. All of us have been given a drink of the one spirit. And that body is not one part, it is many. And just as a reminder, the scripture also says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members share its joy. You all then are the body of Christ, and each of you is a member of it. The word of God. Amen. Thank you, Deb. All right, Katie, I'm going to hand things over to you, and uh, we look forward to your presentation. Thank you. Thank you. I, um, thank you all for, um, invi well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for being here. Um, thank you for that gracious introduction um, and that reading. I, I'm almost having a hard time collecting my thoughts. That, that reading was so perfect. I'm, I'm you know, thinking about uh, Body of Christ and, you know, sex abuse crisis. It's a, it's a, very apropos. I haven't thought of that passage in light of the sex abuse crisis, but I think I should going forward. So um, anyways, thank you to all who joined. Uh, I'm really, truly honored to be here. Um, and as you heard, 
I'm just going to kind of expand upon uh, this short little essay I wrote for the Pope Francis lexicon. Um, and, you know, the, the word I was assigned was uh, accountability, specifically Episcopal accountability. Um, and I kind of, I, I looked at it through the lens of um, my own research, as you heard, into the history of white supremacy and uh, anti-Blackness in particular in the Catholic Church. And I'm going to kind of talk a little bit about what I call this metaphor of slavery um, that is is very uh, formative, both for the kind of the Christian theological imagination, but even kind of, you know, the Western, you know, in quotation, Western kind of political imagination, right? So, I mean, we could just think, you know, we talk about being slaves to sin, right? Of course, obviously, that's the tradition considers that to be negative, right? Uh, obviously a bad thing. But then we also have this thing, kind of the way out of slave to, slavery to sin is slavery to um, Christ or to God, right? So the, the, the tradition kind of does a lot with this metaphor of slavery. Um, and hopefully you'll see in, in my remarks kind of um, why I think dealing with this metaphor of slavery and, and realizing that we're actually uh, – the way we're thinking about slavery and speaking about it, we don't even realize maybe that we are is based upon a misunderstanding of what slavery is. Right. So, um, and hopefully my, I, I my intention is that my talk, my remarks will be less than my allotted time. Cause I think a lot of times our, um, kind of discussion after these kind of formal prepared talks can be more generative. So I really do. I would love to hear what, what you all have to say when this is over. Okay. So, uh, right, here I go. Um, the cause of accountability is unfinished business in the Catholic Church, especially with respect to the clergy sex abuse crisis. Incredibly, more than 15, 16, 17 years, right after the news of systemic cover-up broke in the United States, many survivors are still seeking justice, or at least the assurance that what happened to them will not happen to others. When Francis was elected to papal office in 2013, many Catholics hoped that this would all change. Even more than his predecessors, Francis has cultivated an intensely pastoral approach to the priesthood. And who better to protect God's sheep than a shepherd? But for many survivors and their allies, these hopes have soured. As clergy sex abuse survivor and activist Marie Collins, and I'm, I'm say her name again, Marie Collins, if you're unfamiliar with her, um, I, I find her to be um, just incredibly inspiring and 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 I kind of take my lead from her about what's going on. Um, Marie Collins, she's Irish. Um, so as clergy sex abuse survivor and activist Marie Collins explained after announcing her 2017 resignation from Pope Francis's Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors, despite the fact that Francis, quote, does at heart understand the horror of abuse and the need for those who would hurt minors to be stopped, end quote, other high-ranking church officials nonetheless have refused, quote, to implement the recommendations of the commission, end quote. Um, yeah, so again, and this is interesting because obviously I wrote this, you know, a while back and even prepared for this talk a few weeks ago. But, you know, we just heard uh, the results of another kind of pontifical commission this time on, you know, the women, women, women deacons. Right. So there's a similar thing of there's a there's a, a pontifical commission that's kind of more democratic. Um, and then there's Pope Francis kind of has a say, but there's also other factors, uh, you know, in, in the curia. Um, so this is very much something to think about in terms of church governance. Okay. Um, we may feel tempted to blame Francis for this failure of, of the of the commission. But rather than asking what Francis ought to do to hold abusers accountable, we ought to ask why survivors of clergy sexual abuse have so far been unable to themselves. Composed partially of lay people barred from participating in church governance, the commission, like all the commissions, can only make suggestions. It cannot issue commands. Put another way, the commission failed not because of what certain Vatican officials refused to do, but because of what it could not make them do. Focusing on Francis, though understandable, only distracts us from the root cause of the commission's failure, its lack of power. Indeed, no one can hold another person accountable unless she has the power to do so. And in the hierarchical Catholic Church, power flows downwards much more easily than it surges upwards. For this reason, survivors of clergy sexual abuse must convince those they cannot compel, the bishops, to change the way they exercise their power over the priests below them. No wonder accountability has so far proven elusive. In response to these failures, we may also wish that more bishops and Vatican officials would follow more closely in Francis's pastoral footsteps. Surely wounded sheep need better shepherds. 
But Francis's pastoral approach to priestly office paradoxically enables the clerical intransigence it aims to disrupt. This claim initially may seem unfair. After all, Francis's pastoral interpretation of papal power seemingly epitomizes the Second Vatican Council's contention that bishops, with their helpers, the priests and deacons, have taken up the service of the community and in so doing preside in place of God as shepherds over the flock. So, you know, the Second Vatican Council, you know, really tried to move from the kind of the language of priest as lord or master to priest as as shepherd, right? Um, for the Second Vatican Council, as for Francis, the bishops do not simply serve the church by governing it. They govern the church by serving it. That is, they follow, quote, in the example of the good shepherd, end quote, Jesus Christ. But this understanding of the priesthood appears feasible only because the word service has acquired a meaning that uh, bears very little in common with true servitude. I, I bet some of you, even when I first said that I, I, I you know, I was going to talk about slavery, you're kind of wondering uh, that there really isn't even a connection between service and slavery, right? That that might even seem completely jarring, um, but bear, bear with me, bear with me. Um, so today, for example, we consider volunteer work and the pursuit of elected office as forms of service, right? We hear this all the time. For example, after college, I, I did a service program, right? Um, and, you know, service to our country, you know, we, we hear service and that it's, it's a positive thing, right? Used in that sense. Um, but at least in the, in the, you know, Christian tradition, we'll bracket the, the you know, pol politicians for now, we'll bracket them. Uh, but the New Testament perceives service, and I'm putting that word in quotation, as closely related to and sometimes indistinguishable from slavery. Okay, and another thing that makes this tricky for us is because there's this weird etymological thing that has happened uh, with the word with the word slavery and service, right? So, the word in English service, right? Um, and, and that's often, you know, if you in, in the New Testament, at least in in more recent translations of of the Bible, you know, the New Testament you'll hear service rather than slavery, right? But but um, it actually in the New Testament, right? Because of course the New Testament was written in Greek, comes from the Greek word, and I don't know Greek. So I, I have no clue if this is how it should be pronounced, but the Greek word doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, um, which, uh, you know, in, in, you know in, in the Roman Empire of Jesus' time, or the time that the New Testament was written, referred to slaves and slavery, not servants and servants, right? Not, you know, we might think servants, we think, you know, down Abbey, right? Um, but uh, that word service, that, we, that is it, the English word service we see in the in more recent translations of the New Testament comes from the Greek word that actually meant slaves, right? Like literal slaves. And then again, like I said, there's this tricky etymological thing in English, making it even worse, right? The English word service, right, derives from the Latin word for slave, servus, S-E-R-V-U-S. So, so that, so all this is like feeding into this confusion with service and slavery, where um, we sometimes think they're they're distinct, they're different, and they have come to mean different things right, in our usage, but especially if we're talking about scripture or the Christian tradition, it's not really, we can't really talk about service without talking about slavery, okay? And you can, you know, if you're not buying that claim, feel free to uh, push back about it uh, in the Q&A. All right, and now, further confusing things um, in the, you know, the Christian conversation here. During much of the 20th century, the Greek word, and again, I don't speak Greek, so it, di diakon, D-I-A-K-O-N, which was translated into deacon or diaconate, um, was mistranslated to mean something akin to lowly or humble service. Um, and there's a whole interesting history. If you're curious, the scholar who's done work on this is a man named John Collin. Um, and it was interesting that this kind of uh, recovery of this idea of, of, of kind of clerical, the clerical office, office should be one of lowly, humble service happened in, in Western churches, Protestant and Catholic alike around the same time. Interesting. Kind of, they weren't necessarily influenced each other. Kind of, there's a, a, a interesting history of how that happened. But anyways, in the Catholic church, it happened, this kind of, what was then seen to be a recovery of the idea of, of, of the, the deacon as, as someone who serves lowly and humbly, you know, coincided with the Second Vatican Council. Um, and as probably a lot of you know, right, that, that, that really, that, 
that notion of, of of thinking of of the deacon or you know an ordained person in the in in the church as as a servant in this sense, you know, really was very much of the spirit of the time of the Second Vatican Council, right? Um, so when at the Second Vatican Council they restored the the the, the diaconate, um, this was kind of the theology they gave it, right? This is the theological grounding they gave it that this this was the function of a deacon. Um, was to serve in in this sense, um, and you know, this again was per- perfect. Not not only did it kind of really go with the spirit of the Second Vatican Council, but remember the Second Vatican Council. You know, this notion of aggiornamento, this Italian word, uh, and and then resourcement, French word. These were kind of the two guiding principles of the Second Vatican Council, right? Resourcement going back to the sources, right? The early Church Scripture and aggiornamento, kind of opening the windows of of the church of of the church to the world right updating so this this restoration of the deacon it seemed to do both right because it seemed to recover this lost sense of what the, of what what a deacon was this lost sense of service but at the same time you know it was doing something new um okay now and i this i i also just want to make sure i'm not saying that i'm not critiquing the notion uh that people in power should be uh you know more humble or lowly that that's not what i'm that's not here what i'm pointing out i'm pointing out that it was based upon a misunderstanding right this translation unfortunately um as this scholar i mentioned before just john collins you know the past 20 30 years he he kind of sums sums up the whole kind of minor fiasco this way he says you know people generally think of of diaconia this the greek word as being especially expressive of service to the needy and originating in the ancient greek vocabulary for slavery right so we think somehow a priest or a deacon is 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 emptying himself right um uh is is becoming you know something that is helping or working for others but he says in truth this greek word is better translated the way it used to be translated, right? So again, this, tradition isn't all. So you know, sometimes our our updates or our our reforms are are not just because something's a reform or something's new doesn't necessarily mean it's better, right? Some sometimes uh, in trying to take a step forward, we actually take a step back, right? Um, he said this word is really better translated as with the the English words minister or ministry. And again, we've got to think about that too, right? Because a minister in this sense, isn't just, you know, someone who presides over, uh, you know, a worship service, right? Like a, we might think of like a Protestant minister. Um, it's something a little bit more specific than that. Okay. And I'll just quote Collins again, because he's the expert here. He says this term, this Greek term and its cognates express ideas about delivering messages, especially messages which came from another world. So it's kind of like almost, you know, as he argues in the, in the, in the context, you know, in that first, second century context in the New Testament was written, there's almost like a supernatural um, meaning to it, um, you know, which we moderns might, you know, we, we might be a little bit uh, wary of that or like we might feel a little awkward with that. But it's just important to know that's how they that's how they would have heard that term. OK. All right. So. So, OK, Hol- holding that in your mind. OK, back back to the slavery thing. Right. Um so this this confusion. So what I want to say is, even if even if this Greek word should be translated to mean like slave, a literal slave, right, or a servant, I, I we're we're kind of in trouble here, right? Because let's think about what slavery actually is, right? Um, slavery isn't is something terrible. And 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 I feel like in this this kind of movement towards recovering slavery as service, we've forgotten that, right? Okay. Um, what I want to say is what what we have in mind with this notion of service, right? This retrieved notion of service, of service to the poor, service to the needy, you know, being lowly, humbly, it really isn't very much like slavery at all. Um, you know, not even the most you know heroically self-effacing um, lay or, or or clergy men that we can think of isn't really acting like a slave. Um, what I want to say is what we deem service to the poor is considered Christ-like and morally praiseworthy worthy, and no, the most, no small part because it is undertaken voluntarily, right? That's the first thing. Um, at least in our culture, I think for the most part in the history of the church, you become ordained as a priest or a deacon, or if you are a layperson like me who does a quote-unquote service program, you chose that voluntarily, right? Obviously, that's anathema to what slavery is. Um, another thing, right, again, this is where um, I'm thinking 
I mean, of actual historical cases of people who were actually literally enslaved, right? Um, slaves are violently dominated. Uh, there's a good reason why the whip stands in as a type of symbol for the master-slave relationship kind of universally, right? I mean, the whip, literally, right? Not 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 just structural violence, but physical violence, one person to another. Um, and I mean, obviously, and I, certainly I wouldn't want this to be the, I wouldn't want it, I don't want anybody to be physically dominated, right? That's obviously not the case. That's That says nothing, that, that does not at all characterize the um, priest or deacon and lay, lay person relationship. Um, slavery is also stigmatized. Has joined. Um, and obviously we know in the Catholic Church, service, even undertaken by lay people or, or priests or deacons, does earn for those who perform it a type of honor or esteem. Um, I know we can we can go on and on, right, about about that. Um, and I want to point out too, and, and I just want to allude to this, and we can talk about it later if it's helpful or interesting to you all. The Catholic Church isn't the only, uh, we're, we're not the only ones who kind of misuse slavery, the idea of slavery, right? I, I think I mentioned before, in the West, kind of, you know, past two, three, four hundred years, kind of all political movements use this metaphor of slavery, right? I mean, you can think Karl Marx, right? Uh, the proletariat were wage slaves. Um, you know, the U.S. American revolutionary, like, you know, Thomas Jefferson and that whole crew, they literally explicitly called themselves slaves to King George, right? They, um, on and on, feminists, right? And again, I'm very sympathetic to the goals of the feminist movement. They they often, you know, described a wife as a slave of her husband and on and on. Every, this is kind of like the way we think this, what I call metaphor of slavery. And what I just want to call attention to is none of those things, even though a lot of them are bad, mm -hmm. right? Obviously, Has patriarchy is bad on and on. They're not like slavery. Okay? And this good thing that the Catholic Church is trying to promote service isn't like slavery either, okay? And we can go on. We can talk more about that. I mean, whatever is helpful for you all uh, when, when I'm done. Okay, so then, all right, so here's the payoff of all that, that kind of discussion. So my point is, right, even when priests and bishops act as slaves or servants to God, right, you know, that notion, right, that, um, you know, we find we're we liberated from sin by kind of serving God, right? Um, they do not act as slaves or servants to lay people. So, again, just th think, with, you know, think literally of literal slavery, like an actual enslaved person. For example, while, while priests and bishops are endowed with the power to govern others, slaves are denied the right to act as rulers even of themselves. Um, enslaved people exercise power only in the name of and with permission of their master. But of course, priests and bishops neither require nor seek the consent of the laity. Again, think, think to the papal commission, to, or uh, sorry, to the commission on the protection of minors, the papal commission on women diaconate, right? They, all they can do is present to the Pope a report. Um, pope ultimately can do what he wants. Some of you may know Paul VI, that's what happened uh, with the Papal Birth Control Commission, right? They did this whole study. Um, there were lay people, including women on this commission. Uh, you know, they presented, they did the study. They kind of went on a listening tour. They presented him the uh, report. Overwhelmingly, they were in favor of, of allowing, you know, married people to use birth control. And Paul VI ultimately changed his mind and kind of preserved the prohibition, right? Okay. Um, priest, bottom line, priests, bishops do not take orders from the laity, Okay. Um, all right. And even if we want to distinguish between a servant like Downton, Down, Downton Abbey type servant from slaves, right? Uh, even servants, right? Of course, they're much better off than slaves, right? They are still subordinated. They're still subordinates to their master, right? Or, or, or you know, to their boss in a way priests and bishops never have been to the laity. Okay, well, could it be otherwise? Um, again, our own, the tradition, we, there's some I don't want to say dishonesty because I don't know that it's intentional, but that, that's not, this isn't really the truth. It's kind of, it's going to be hard for us to, to, uh, to have priests be servants in this way we intend, right? Because church tradition also positions priests as uh, presbyters or, you know, again, another Greek word, um, like the root word for like Presbyterian, right? Or elders uh, and bishops as, you know, that root word, uh, Episcopal, which is overseer. Again, there's that language of slavery again, right? So rather than modes of service, these capacities conflict with it. Um, on and on, right? So the, the, we, we, want, we want the uh, priests to be servants, but at the same time, going back to the New Testament, uh, the tradition is positioning them as the, or bishops, at least as akin to overseers. All right. All right. So what I want to say is bishops can be over. So then bishops can be overseers of the lady or they can be ser servants to them, but they cannot be both. 
All right, so here's just my last little concluding salvo here. Um, so in truth, priests and bishops could act as slaves or servants to the lady only if the lady were empowered to act as masters over them. That's another kind of payoff of actually really taking this language of slavery and service seriously, right? Like if you, if you, if you don't have a master, you're not a slave. Um, if you don't have a boss or a master, you're not a servant. Um, you know, without the, uh, I can't remember their name, you know, the people who, who own the house in Downton Abbey, right? If they didn't exist, none of those people would be servants. You cannot be a servant unless you're serving someone. Um, and if so, and if lay people were positioned as masters of priests and bishops, they would have no problem problem holding sexually abusive clergymen accountable. I mean, obviously, um, because that's the nature of the master slave relationship, right? Is obedience. So I just want us to um, kind of think about take seriously our own tradition, but also think about the way that we you know, we've kind of tried to think our way out of of some of these problems. We've kind of tried to repurpose um, some of these. Uh, ideas in the tradition. And I just kind of want to draw our attention to kind of some of the stumbling blocks. I think in general, this language of slavery, even thinking about, you know, God as master, I, I think I think the fact that we're not conscious of what we're really saying when we're using this language, I think it's keeping us from kind of recognizing uh, what's really going on. So that's, um, I'll, I'll stop there. And um, like I said, whatever, whatever you all want to talk about. Um, yeah. That's that's it. So that, thank you. Thank you for listening. Great. Thanks, Katie. So, um, yeah, that's a lot to chew on. And, and certainly I, I think language has a certain power because it, it shapes the way we think. And you do. You, you really, you know, and in a lot of ways you hear uh, priests and bishops talking about themselves uh, in the language of, you know, they're a servant, they're a servant to the people, mm -hmm. they're a servant to God, etc. And, you know, when I first read your essay in um, uh, Pope Francis' lexicon, I thought, oh my gosh, we just accept that. We just accept that language. Mm -hmm. And, you mm -hmm. know, because it sounds nice and it sounds good. Right. Um, you know, and, and certainly it is something that exists in our tradition. Um, but what, you know, when that word comes up and when that word is used, how can we as lay people um, push back against it um, as it's practiced today? Um, you know, so when you hear a bishop or a priest say, well, I'm a servant of God, I'm a servant of the people, you know, what, what could be a, a helpful way of responding to that or, or a different word that we might say, well, no, you're not actually a servant. You're functioning as a, you know, do, right. do you understand my question? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, I think it's a great question. I, I think too, something I, I, uh, I also should say, I mean, another thing with the, the shepherd language, right. Um, just to, just, to make make sure I'm clear what I'm saying, you know, a shepherd is closer to a a shepherd. It kind of has the same kind of power relationship over a sheep, right? And so even that uh, has that same thing going on. It, yeah, I that's a really great question, and I, I think again, especially for us in the United States, um, I think probably throughout the Americas, you know, maybe parts of Western Europe, this is going to be really hard for us. Because like I said, this isn't just, oh, some weird, quirky thing Catholics do. I mean, I think anytime we talk about freedom, which that, that's not so much on, on play here, uh, we're we're kind of invoking slavery, right? We, we, yeah, we think about what slavery is based Has on, or we think of what freedom is based upon what slavery is. Anyways, um, I, I think I think what would be helpful is that, like, I think you said it in your question, right? Just, let's just be, let's just, um, let's take the words we're using seriously, right? So if, if you are actually calling yourself a servant, um, you know, even if, even if you're not sold uh, about servant coming from slavery, if we just really think about a servant, again, even just in the kind of the nicer romanticized Downton Abbey sense, right? Like, like you said, you're, we're, you're not. Um, and uh, so I just, I, I think that's it really. Uh, I don't need, I'm not sure what, I mean, it's, it's tricky, right? I, um, I guess I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm kind of thinking off the cuff here because, you know, in one sense, I guess bishops sort of, uh, 
I mean, dictator is too strong of a word, right? But, you know, the, their relationship over their diocese is, is, is not, it's not democratic, right? Um, it's not egalitarian uh, and it's not supposed to be. Um, so, yeah, I, I think just, let's just stop. Let's take our, take the word reasoning seriously, I think. So I don't, I don't know what, what we should replace it with, but I think, mm. um, but I'm just not sure, right? I, I think this may be something we can think through collectively, um, but just be honest, like, I don't know that you can serve someone that you have power over, right? Or, or you know, what, or, or if, what is the thing that we're wanting, um, you know, priests and bishops to do? Like, I think, you know, Pope Francis has been so brilliant with these kind of um, richly symbolic gestures, which I don't mean that in a trivial sense, you know, like washing the feet of prisoners um, during Holy Week. You know, I think there he's really, he's trying to model this notion of service right um and i think he he is right because that is kind of that is like a, a servile type activity um but then if he really were those people it, you know but then but then he has still the option of you know um accepting or rejecting the finding of a commission right and so i'm I'm not here saying that he shouldn't have that power i'm just saying there's a there's a it's very limited this um kind of you know humility that he's trying to model is 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 um he has much more he's he's much more often acting the opposite of that than 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 otherwise and that's just built into the nature of his position right um i don't know if that makes sense but yeah yeah well it's interesting as you talk too i'm I'm sort of i'm thinking about what we've done with jesus because you know of course you go back and say well the model is jesus the model of servant leadership is jesus and yet we've gotten so far from the scriptural Jesus, you know, he was king of the universe, Lord of Lords, you know, Prince of right. Peace. So we've we've imbued him with all of all of this language of power, Lord, mm-hmm. King, Prince. And um and yet we're supposed to also think of him as the the servant leader, you know? Um yep. So it's, yep. it's very interesting. And again, you know, another thing too, I mean, we've got language in, um, in, in the New Testament, I forget where exactly, I'm a Catholic ethicist, so Bible is not my strong suit, forgive me. Um, but, uh, you know, talk about he, you know, he he became like a slave, right? He emptied himself, you know, took the form of a slave, mm-hmm. but it even goes beyond that, even the crucifixion, right? Um, um, in, in the Roman Empire, it wasn't only slaves at the time of Jesus, it wasn't only slaves that were crucified, but um, crucifixion was very much kind of like the, the, the kind of quintessential punishment for slaves. And then originally when it first mm, started out, mm-hmm. that, that, that was the only group of people that were um, punished that way. Um, so to be crucified, you know, obviously it was torture. It was, I mean, literal torture. It was, you know, perhaps the most horrific way to die, uh, um, certainly up there, but it, you know, it, the people, you know, Jesus's contemporaries, it would, he would have been kind of, associated with actual slaves just by being killed that way. Um, Mm. And again, that's another thing just to think about too, right? I mean, uh, you know, to be crucified, um, that wasn't, I mean, we can have a theological discussion, right, about, you know, whether you've got a high Christology or a low Christology, but at least as I read the scriptures, and I know that the passion accounts are slightly different, you know, in in each of the gospels, Jesus, he, he chose... I mean, he, he was crucified voluntarily in the sense that he lived a life that he knew that could happen perhaps, but certainly to be crucified, there, there's, I, I can't think of another example of not having control and not having power, right? I mean, that, that's the ultimate example of things being done to you. Um, so again, there, you know, there's another thing about taking seriously, uh, you know, what, what would be to be cruciform. It's, it's not, you know, um, voluntarily doing something for someone you know it's 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 ultimately it's it's a it's it's a horrible thing and i think that's also maybe that's part of the problem right because um there's this tension between you know you know take up your cross right but at the same time god does god want anyone you know how it's hard to conceive of a god that would want anyone to be crucified right uh so i I think that's kind of all all these kind of you know is it a paradox is it a contradiction is it a tension i think it's all kind of wrapped up in it i think but yeah Mm -hmm. I see someone calling with a 212 uh, 316 phone number. Yeah, hi. This is Rita um, in New York City. Um, so uh, thank you for that uh, description of the, uh, the slavery servant 
challenges, I guess, um, and then the complete imbalance of power, uh, and which is the essence of clericalism, I guess. Um, right. I have a very specific question around the Deacon Commission and the oh, yeah. um, the fact that uh, Francis, I, I don't know if he said it on the airplane or a later commentary, seemed to indicate that um, that we need to talk about this, that, that we, we, the people out mm-hmm. here, need to make some noise about this, we need to talk about this, implying, uh, I guess, that uh, right. he would listen, or, or that would create a different balance, a different source of input. And um, so one of my local parishes were having a deacon study program using uh, Stella oh, cool. Sagano's book, and oh, nice. yeah. uh, trying to get more information, facts out there, people like uh, even getting the WikiLeaks, uh, oh, sorry, WikiLeaks, Wikipedia updated oh, right. uh, on some of the deacon entries, the uh, St. Radigand, et cetera, oh, wow. to get more information out. Um, so I, w- what do you make of that in terms of, is that something we could do? Because we're really hamstrung by the papacy. I mean, that's just the bottom line. Um, and we, I don't know how we can be really synodal if we have a, a pope. But um, I have a feeling he's trying in whatever, some way to say, well, here's a way we can break out of this a little bit. I want your input, kind of. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. And I, I think, uh, I don't know, this papacy, I, I feel like more, I mean, in my, in my life, I really only remember Benedict and John Paul II. I feel like pa- Francis is papacy more than the previous two. I feel like there's, everybody is always trying to figure out what, you know, what is he really thinking? You know, what, what is this really about? Uh, you know, what's really going on? Um, I don't know. I don't know what that says, but again, I'm, I, I am not a super expert on kind of the inside baseball of Vatican politics. I think it's, I think it's quite possible. Um, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because we do think of the Pope, right? Like he has all this ultimate power, and to a certain degree, that's true. But I know there's also, you know, he's not the only one, uh, you know, within the Vatican that that has power, right? And so, in a weird way, he, I don't want to say he's like uh, an American president, right? But it's something similar in the sense that, you know, you've got State Department, you've got the, you know, military generals, you know, there's all this kind of stuff going on, and I, I. Something a, a read on that I've seen again. This is, I guess, a, a favorable read on Francis, right? Is that he feels like he can, if if he were to allow there to be women deacons, perhaps kind of the political fallout from that within the Vatican would be um, catastrophic to him, or you know, maybe not worth it, or maybe he's worried about. Um, again, granted, he can he can he can say there can be women deacons, but that just gives individual bishops, right. The, the power, it doesn't, it's not a command. It can't make a bishop, you know, ordain a particular woman. So maybe, maybe he's, maybe he's afraid that um, there, there won't be enough bishops that, that would actually let women be ordained. And he's maybe trying to, um, you know, put pressure on the individual deacons, right. Or, or to see, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, you know, your your read on is probably as good as mine. I think what what your parish is doing sounds amazing, and I think uh, the more of that, the better. Uh, again, I, I think you know, pointing out the fact that we don't have cert, we don't have as much power as maybe we should have, or as we think we have. It's not the same as saying that we have no power, right? So, I mean, I like that your parish, you guys are claiming the power that you have, and, and in a sense, you're you're you know carving out new new kind of channels of power, and I think that's awesome. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I think Rita, in a certain way, um, you know, you may be onto something with you know Francis trying to. We may not have lay people may not have power, you know, canonically in the church, mm-hmm. but certainly we may be able to have some influence here. And you know, mm-hmm. it, I, as Katie said, your read is as good as probably anyone else's at this mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. You know. And and is it possible that that he wants us to exercise that influence and and thereby mm-hmm. exert some power, um, even if it's not canonical, onto mm-hmm. the the local ordinaries and, and and perhaps even the global church? Who knows? You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and it can be and it can be maybe maybe that's not what he had in mind, right? But you know we can still do it too. You know. <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. not, I don't, I don't mean yeah. that in a disrespectful way towards towards Pope Francis, but you know, um, I, I think that's that's part of this too, right? Again, if, if thinking about the shepherd sheep model, well, for sheep, we just kind of go where the shepherd says, 
okay, yes, the shepherd protects us from the wolves, right? But at the same time, you know, we're sheep. We we were like, you know, the dumbest animal of all time, right? Um, so even what you know, what 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 you are doing at that parish is is in a sense you're not being sheep. Um, and and um, I, I'm not saying that that. Um, that that the, the idea of the shepherd has no no value in our church, but I'm saying we don't have to only be sheep, right? But I just have to throw in at the very end. That, but the pastor had to approve it, so mm-hmm. so much depends. Oh right, on, oh right. Okay, so we're still in the hierarchy. Yep. but we have yep. to find our way. I mean, I think I think we just you know uh, somehow we have to get these words of hierarchy, uh, power plays. Um, non-consensus, you know, make, people just making decisions at the top. That's not the way of the Lord. Um, mm-hmm. But we'll have this. And, and it's my, actually, it's a sister mm-hmm. parish to ours. It's a Franciscan parish, and we're, but we're advertising it at my parish, and we're going to be participating, and it's very exciting. Mm-hmm. So. That's really awesome. Yeah. So. Thanks, Rita. I see someone else here with a 916 area code has unmuted. Go ahead. Hey, um, yeah, a question. Uh, have you got more examples of how the laity has asserted power or suggestions as to how we could take over a bit more and how mm. to network among ourselves so that we can leverage our energy and our our effectiveness? Oh, man, that's a great question. I mean, again, I'm probably not the best, you know, I'm you know, been in, in the academy, right, reading books, and, you know, I'm I'm detached from these kind of real, you know, this kind of strategic tactical intelligence of, you know, organizing and stuff, but I mean, I, I do think something, you know, that's, I think, a challenge for us is because, you know, we're, you know, we're organized into parishes. I mean, Catholic life is is lived at the parish level, right? I mean, that's just how it is, right? You want to get baptized, you want to receive the Eucharist, you know, somebody dies, you give them a funeral, um, and, you know, as the previous caller said, that means, you know, it's hard to organize things within the parish level without the permission of the pastor. And so, you know, sometimes a pastor is super on board with something, sometimes he's not. Um, so I think, I think that's, I, I mean, in, in some sense, the parish is, is, is amazing. It's, 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 you know, a, a beautiful thing, but in, in this sense of trying to um, kind of carve new niches, right. Or, or new ways of relating to each other, I think it can be a limit, right. Cause ultimately it, the, the pastor can kind of shut something down. So I don't know. I know there are, um, you know, like this, like this, this organization, right. That we're all part of right now. Um, you know, I know there's other, you know, I guess there's call to action, those kind of things that are seeking to, you know, bring, you know, organized Catholics, um, outside of the parish. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I, it's, it's really, yeah, it's, it's really tricky because of that. I, I think, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, Oh gosh, why is his name escaping me right now? Oh, he wrote. Oh my gosh, he just wrote like two or three days ago a very controversial piece about um he, why to abolish the priesthood. Oh my gosh, what's his name? James Carroll. Thank you. Gosh, I think I could thinking of other books he wrote. Yeah, you know, um, you know, he talked about um, you know, lay Catholics kind of organizing Mark in the back of, of the parish. You know, um, has joined. I, so I don't know. I don't know if there's kind of like a. a, a shadow groups within a parish that are unofficial or, or I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I think, I think there's gotta be experimentation and I don't know, boldness. And I, yeah, I'm not sure, uh, but um, yeah. it, it seems to be something a lot of us are, you know, really itching for, for lots of, re- I mean, you know, for thinking about reading the signs of the times, I mean, I think, I think that is um, definitely what the spirit is telling us uh, needs to be done. If I could, I might uh, actually press upon Deb, um, uh, Deb Rose Milovec to chime in a little bit here because she's working on a really cool project with um, the uh, Voice of the Faithful and the Association of Catholic Priests um, on uh, discussing this and sort of creating less clerical and more collaborative Mm -hmm. parishes. So, um, Deb, I don't know if you have any any insight or anything that you've been working on with with the folks at the AUSCP and Voice of the Faithful that you want to share? Sure. Um, Yeah, I was saving this for my uh, for the end when I was making announcements, but I'm glad to talk about it now. So uh, we're going to launch an effort uh, on Pentecost uh, and it's called the Bridge Dialogues. 
And what it is is a set of resources that, uh, you know, when you talk about clericalism, you know, people's eyes kind of glaze over. And I think uh, it's it's not a very uh, exciting word, but it's a word that we all need to understand. And we especially mm-hmm. need to understand the dynamics and how people experience it. Because it's, um, you know, it's it's something that's going on in almost every parish because of exactly what Katie's talking about tonight with this, you know, the notion of a certain group in power and and um, and so how much how much collaboration can there be? Well, I I don't know how I think that there's a lot of room for growth and I think there's a lot of ways that we can overcome the clericalism. So what we have uh, working with the Association of U.S. Catholic Priests, which is a group of about 1,200 uh, priests in the United States who are Vatican II priests, um, and Voice of the Faithful, which has been around for a very long time, uh, we're working together to um, create a set of resources, and really they're tools for education and dialogue. And so uh, it is, to, and and. A session is to be run in a parish or a community by a priest and a layperson as partners. Mm-hmm. And um, and so there are various sort of educational resources, things for people to read, uh, things that Pope Francis has said about clericalism. And it's really to help um, parishioners and priests to talk about the downside of clericalism because, you know, while it breeds... Um, a kind of helplessness among lay Catholics often, you know, where father is the, the decision maker. Um, mm-hmm. that, need, that, that needs to be challenged, and, and lay Catholics need to find, um, find the, the, the confidence and courage to do that. And it also breeds an isolation um, with priests. And so in the end, I don't think it's, it's a very good system for anybody. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, you know, this... The effort here is to uh, really to raise awareness among Catholics about the dynamics. What does it look like? You know, are you, do you always look to Father for the answers? Do you always look for Father? And then, the, and then to, to have an honest dialogue about, you know, what that looks like on both sides. So, um, so anyway, that's just one tool that we are uh, about to launch here in uh, just a couple of weeks. And um, we're hoping that... Uh, Catholics will find it useful. There will be a survey at the end that people can fill out uh, some of their experiences and maybe some of the ways that they do experience and uh, clericalism, both priests and laity. And uh, we'll bring that together for a report and send it to bishops and and, uh, Catholics in general so that people can get a greater sense of, of what this means there's so many so much talk about it but uh what does clerical mean and how do i experience it mm-hmm. okay that sounds great that sounds a bit can i can just say one 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 thing too just to, something that's for everyone to think about um another reason i wanted to bring bring up this the translation uh you know to the word minister minister being messenger something i've just been thinking about i don't know how feasible this would be or if it's correct or whatever but you know, um, we have this thing where, you know, the, the priestly capacity, you know, the priest is mediator, you know, the priest is the one who, um, you know, you know, confects the Eucharist, right? Um, it occurred to me that at least theoretically, that, that capacity, that priestly capacity, that, you know, messenger, mediator, doesn't, there's no theoretical reason why that has to be linked up with that those are the people who govern, right? It seems to me in this whole, mm-hmm. in this conversation, you know, the Carol piece or others, I'm talking about, you know, what do we do about clericalism? You know, he went as far to say abolish the priesthood. Um, I think what he, I think what he means to be saying is let's abolish that the priest having power, right? Uh, I guess I'm just wondering too, like, and uh, not that again, but we can, you know, snap our fingers and make this happen, but the 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 kind of distinctly Catholic as opposed to Protestant sense of priest as mediator, um, mm-hmm. we could have that. We could have a kind of a class of people. Right, who had these, you know, quote unquote, special powers. Right, I'm kind of being a little bit glib here, but they don't have to be the ones who govern, necess- at least theoretically. Right, I don't know. That's just something I've been thinking about. Um, uh, uh, yeah, it, well, it kind of goes along mm-hmm. with that, right? I mean, they, they could be a priest, but they don't have to be. And even if you think of other, you know, cultures that 
you know, have, have priests, you know, that aren't Christian, you know, the, the, the priestly class that are not necessarily, you know, the ones who perform certain rituals or ceremony, they're, they're not like the, the chief of the village necessarily. Right. So anyways. Right. Right. Yeah. And I'll go, um, yeah, uh, perhaps another answer, um, for our caller, I'll go back to, um, if you go to futurechurch.org slash podcasts, mm-hmm. and if you go to the end of um, our teleconference with Francine Cardman, she oh. had some really interesting thoughts on how lay people should just not give in to, mm. to clericalism. You know, so it was things like, um, you know, and not out of disrespect in any way, shape or form, but stop right. calling your priest father. Mm. I just, just simply as a reminder that he is a person. Um, wow. And so mm-hmm. he has a name <laughs> that was given to him by his mother uh, and his father, you know, or whoever raised him. Um, just as that kind of reminder that, you know, there are ways. And I think she even brought up um, one of the things, you know, you, you always hear about people going to their, their, their parish priest for an answer about a theological question. She said, well, mm-hmm. there are, lay, you know, theologians who are significantly more qualified to answer your question. So reach out to them instead of your parish priest, you know, and they'd be happy to answer your questions um, mm-hmm. theologically. So she's, you know, her, her basic argument, um, you know, through some of those questions was just don't acquiesce to the clerical culture um, and be aware mm-hmm. of it in yourself um, and how we sort of just have been trained uh, in that way too. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So, um, I think perhaps it, uh, we might have time for just one last call. I don't see that anyone has unmuted themselves, but uh, I'll give uh, I'll give it. Uh, let's see. Yep, we've got a nine zero five three three nine number. Go ahead. Hi, yes, it's Mary Ellen Chown calling from uh, near Toronto, Ontario, Canada. First of all, I want to say thank you so much for having this evening and this talk. And Katie, I've just a penny dropped tonight in your um, explanation of looking at service and slavery and how uh, you can't be a, a servant and a governor at the same time. I just wanted to um, say and maybe ask from our viewpoint, we're writing an open letter mm. to our bishop of Canada recently on... Um, mm. Women Deacon Commission, and, uh, you know, we realize that we want to write and say how disappointed we are, but we also want to give them a task. And so what we have to do here is that in the 1980s, our group of Canadian bishops put together a thing we always called the Green Kit. It was a green folder, but it was for parishes to look at how um, the place of women in the church, the use of inclusive language, you know, in my view, they were kind of ahead of their times considering where we are now. But we feel that we want to remind them of the zeal that they had as a conference of bishops back then for justice and equality for women in the church. Um, but it's really interesting to think about when we've done this once before, talking about the New Roman Missal, we wrote a letter and we didn't get one response back. So we sent a second letter out to every bishop in Canada, and we did actually get some responses back then. And so, you know, it is, again, it just speaks to me of the dynamic of when we're not really equal conversation partners at a table. It's just always from a place of deficit. And, uh, and you know... As joined. Frustrating. <laughs> Sorry, I got, I got kicked off, and I was so into your question. You were just saying about the green folder something. Yeah, so that was a thing about inclusive language that our own bishops wrote in the 80s that was meant to be used in parishes and was really good stuff. And like yes. somewhere it got shelved along the way, and we've never heard about it since. So our goal in mm-hmm. writing this letter is to say, remember what you yourselves have written about this, and have you forgotten the zeal you once had? And uh, um, so we just, we're, we're trying to think, what is the action that we want our bishops to do? But I think what I hear you saying is, they don't, we're not a stakeholder. They, they, the way it's currently set up, they don't have to answer to us. And, in fact, they don't answer to us when we write letters sometimes, mm-hmm. unless we write mm-hmm. it a second time. Even then, you get a perfunctory reply. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. just interesting yeah. to me that I think we have mm-hmm. to keep working, but a penny dropped when you said 
this is the model we're using. So it's understandable that it doesn't work because there is no model for accountability. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, I'm thinking back to the first question, you know, just, yeah, I mean, like, if, if, you know, maybe even just say, like, if you want to be our servant, then, like, in a sense, like, we have to be the boss, right? Right. And if we're not the boss, and, and, and again, that whole model, and I'm not even saying that whole, like, relating to someone as servant boss or slave master, I'm not saying that's good, right? I mean, that whole model might need to be thrown out. I'm not necessarily, I don't necessarily want to be someone's master, right? But I just want them to be honest. If you want to be our servant, then we have to yeah. be in charge. And if we're yeah. not, then you're, you can never be our servant. Right. So yeah, right. I mean, I, yeah. But a genuine or really a helpful model for the church period. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah, it's definitely not egalitarian, right? Whoever's on top. It's not, you know, it's not as, as you know, it's not collaborative. You know, you were yeah. using tonight. So yeah. And just one last point I I put out for the other person who had questions, too, is that I don't have a lot of background in sort of the whole Vatican II thing around synods, but I do know I've been Mm. on some calls with Australian people who have really used that to say, it's here, there's a mechanism for this, we should be having these. And again, Mm. it would be incumbent on those bishops to say, yeah, we're going to employ this mechanism and open it up a bit more. Right. Sure. One one insight that I have sort of taken away from some of our previous calls in terms of getting answers, um, you know, and and the point was made, as I recall, it was explicitly around the the clergy sexual abuse um, piece of it was that, you know, lay people may not necessarily be empowered to call uh, folks, you know, the, the clerics to account. But that what will bring the, the bring the church to a point where it has to be held accountable are the press and mm. the civil authorities. Of, of course, the civil authorities have a stake in um, getting answers from the church, and, and they can compel that legally. Um, but then there is also, you know, the press. <laughs> I'm just think, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just wondering for you. Um, you know, if if it isn't a possibility, you know, obviously give your bishop some time to respond um, and maybe even send a second letter, but then see if you can't press upon your mm, local mm-hmm. media to, to mm. reprint the letter and with the note that we've not gotten a response on this. And these are the mm. problems that we're trying to tackle uh, in this letter. And if our bishop doesn't care about it um, he or doesn't think these are good uh, this is a good way forward, then he ought to explain himself. Um, and perhaps some press pressure, <laughs> so that a couple times, um, some pressure from the press might, uh, you know, that's a tool that we have at our disposal that might, that might get an answer. So wanted to that's throw that great. out. And, I, and, I, and I might even recommend, that's, I might even recommend, and maybe this is clear from what you just said, you know, taking it to not, not to the Catholic press, but, you know, to like the local, you know, um, whether Toronto or, you know, to the, I guess the non-Catholic, like the, you know, the newspaper that everyone would get, right. Or something or the local news station, I think also to that, that seems to be, um, you know, past year, I think that seems to really gets, uh, things going. Yeah. And I think, uh, we're doing an open letter this time, so it does allow us to put it out there. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'll keep you posted on what happens. Please <laughs> do. Fantastic. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. All right. We are uh, at 9.07 here. So I think we're going to um, wrap things, uh, wrap up the, the question and answer session here. It's been a really good conversation. Thank you, Katie. Um, if you do have a question for Katie, um, you can feel free to forward those to me, russ at futurechurch.org. And um, Katie, if it's all right with you, I'll pass those on to you and, and um, you know, try to see, uh, you know, uh, do them thematically. So you don't have to oh, write yeah. a response. No, I, I, want, I would be but, more than you know. happy. Yeah, I'd, I'd be more than happy to be in conversation with any of you. You know, absolutely. Okay, fantastic. Be, be more than happy. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, so if anyone does have uh, an additional question for Katie, 
um, feel free to send those to me at russ at futurechurch.org. That's my first name, R-U-S-S, at futurechurch.org, and I will be more than happy to pass those along. I'm going to uh, pass things over here uh, to Deb, um, but before I do that, I just want to thank you, Katie, so much for being with us tonight and helping us kind of see um, the, the, some of the pitfalls of the language we use and the metaphors and the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about the priesthood, and of course, certainly some of the, the trouble that, that we might fall into given our own history and our own culture on all these topics. I, um, I think it's very helpful. And, and, and certainly, I, speaking for myself, when I first read your essay, my mind was blown. and It was like, <laughs> it was an opening for me um, and, and, and a new insight. And I, I think it may have been for a lot of our callers as well. So thank you. Well, I, and thank you all for, um, you know, being here, you know, uh, and, and listening to me. And I, I hope, I hope, you know, this is the beginning of relationships. I really would like to stay in touch with, I mean, that's, I think something, um, I think it's a shortcoming of my job is, you know, we're very insular. I would I'd love to, you know, have more relationships with um, Catholics that aren't, you know, professors, right. Or academics. So I, I seriously, <laughs> I, I would love, I, I hope this is the start, you know, of, 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 relationships um, going forward, for sure. Great. Thank you. Yeah, we'd love that. So uh, I'll turn things over to Deb for some announcements and closing prayer. Thank you, Russ. Thanks, Katie, so much. It's been a real delight and very eye-opening. Um, so you heard me talk about the Bridge Dialogues. Uh, we have lots of exciting things coming up. Um, we will be soon releasing our packet for the 2019 Mary of Magdala celebrations, something that we've been doing for forever, over 25 years, um, and or over 20 years. And so uh, you can look forward to that. And just to let you know, we have a, a really exciting project to go along with that. That will be, you'll uh, receive some information about it if you download the packet, but we'll be talking about it otherwise. Um, and we're calling it the Feeding 5000 uh, Project, uh, where we're going to, um, through a series of uh, pre-postcards and then uh, sending out um, uh, a, a beautiful poster that Rita Holohan, uh, who is on our board, uh, had commissioned with uh, Sister Margaret Boudot, uh, a Sister of Charity, the artist, and it's um, Mary of Magdala Proclaiming the Resurrection and what we want to do is because um, there is so much art out there still uh, with uh, showing Mary Magdala as the repentant prostitute and uh, just always in this sort of downcast, uh, if not almost pornographic uh, art. Mm. Um, and we want to really uh, reshape the Catholic imagination, and especially for Catholic students who are in, uh, you know, all levels of school, universities, and in seminaries. And so our plan is to send out, uh, with some preparation work, 5,000 of these posters to uh, schools all over and universities and seminaries all over the United States, um, and, and following up with a kind of uh, um, survey to see you know, what they have done with it, where they have posted it, and what the result has been. So it is, an, it is a, a large effort. Uh, the, if you've not seen the art, uh, you, I, you may have already. We have postcards, and we've had posters of Mary of Magdala proclaiming the resurrection. And uh, it is a beautiful piece, uh, and we just think that um, using art is an important way for Catholics to begin to um, reintegrate, I guess, our fu the fullness of who we are, especially as women, but for women and men both uh, within the Catholic Church, our, our roles and our leadership and our gifts uh, to be fully integrated. So this is an exciting project coming up. Uh, next month, we have Michelle Dillon in our Power to the People series. June 26th, she will be talking about the euphemization of power, uh, which is an extremely fascinating topic. Uh, showing how, um, again, language, very much of what uh, Katie has been talking about tonight, how language is used to kind of um, 
uh, I guess, dull our senses to what is really happening within the Catholic Church. So uh, that'll be a very good presentation as well. We've had a wonderful series here, and, and Michelle will continue that wonderful series. Uh, to let you know, we have the Catholic Tipping Point 3 um, tour coming up, and Katie mentioned her name in the beginning. We will be bringing Marie Collins to the United States. Oh, uh, she as, so she was, um, as you heard Katie say, she was on the Commission for the Protection of Children and um, has been uh, just a, a, you know, a beautiful voice, a clear voice for victims and survivors. Uh, and uh, she resigned from the Commission because uh, she felt that they, um, the, basically the Curia uh, people in Rome were not uh, following their lead were actually obstructing them. And so uh, she's a terribly important voice as we look at the whole clergy sex abuse crisis. She will be in the United States in five cities from September 9th through 22nd. So keep that in mind. We'll be sending out more information about that very, very soon. Uh, let's see. I think that's all I wanted to talk about tonight. So... Okay. Yeah. Oh, the other thing I want to make sure make people aware is uh, we do have our new complementarity resource out. The church has, uh, in in you know, over the past few decades, has uh, talked about a new Catholic feminism, which is really not Catholic feminism at all. It is uh, simply a rewriting of subordination. So our, our complementary, uh, dismantling complementary resource has a lot of 18 great resources, prayer service, uh, that helps us to really become aware of what the Vatican is talking about, what John Paul II was talking about in his whole theology of the body. And um, even Pope Francis, uh, you know, is, is uh, you know, he is very much entrenched in this mentality, although he has nuanced it to some degree. Uh, so that resource is out there for you. You can order it, uh, a print copy, but we also have it uh, for download online. So that's a brand new resource. Having said all that, uh, I will end with a, a prayer. Take a breath. Christ has no body now on earth but ours, no hands but ours, no feet but ours. Ours are the eyes through which the compassion of Christ looks out on the world. Ours are the feet with which God goes about doing good. Ours are the hands with which God blesses all people. Amen. Amen.